0: Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective.
1: We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and I am thrilled to interview Dr. Craig Carter and Dr. Chris Bolt on the Covenant Podcast once again. We did this a few years ago, on the topic of Christian metaphysics, epistemology, and apologetics, and today we're going to have another friendly discussion. Uh, Since the last time we recorded, discussions on Thomas Aquinas, Cornelius Van Til, classical theism, and classical apologetics have been seemingly continual, and sometimes it appears as if people are talking past one another. And so, we could think of no better way than to try to resolve this issue than by having Dr. Craig Carter and Dr. Bolt come on the podcast and address the topic of Cornelius Van Til, Thomas Aquinas, and Biblicism. That's the topic of our discussion today. Again, Cornelius Van Til, Thomas Aquinas, and Biblicism. So, Dr. Carter and Dr. Bolt, welcome to the podcast, brothers.
2: Thank you. Good to be here. Thank
1: you
0: for having me on. Yes.
1: Well, we'll start our conversation by asking you this prompted question that we already had prepared. One concern that you have expressed, Dr. Carter, is that Bantill's dismissal of Thomas as one who simply imposed Aristotle's philosophy on theology has strengthened the already existing influence of Biblicism on Reformed theology. So to get our conversation started, first, can you tell our audience what biblicism is and why you're using the word negatively in this context? And then, second, can you explain this concern that you've shared with us and elaborate on it a little bit?
2: Okay, well, it's going to take me a few minutes to explain biblicism, but let me uh, let me let's just take a run at it and try to um, be clear. Biblicism is different from biblical the way I use the word biblical, some some people use them synonymously, but I, I, I don't think we need two words to do the same job. For me, a doctrine is biblical if it expresses what the Bible means correctly. Biblicism, however, is restricting doctrine to what is explicitly said in scripture. And by that, I mean that when we do doctrine, for example, when we have a creed or a confession, or when we say, this is what you must believe in order to be saved, then is it or is it not permissible to use in such doctrine words, concepts that are not directly found in Scripture? Can you, can you include in doctrine a statement that you cannot quote chapter and verse four as occurring in the Bible? And it seems to me that biblicism is something that many people um, unthinkingly think is biblical. They think that biblicism is a high view of the Bible and that it's the safest way to do doctrine. I disagree. If you go back to the Nicene Creed, um, in 325, the Council Fathers inserted the word homoousios into the creed. Why did they do that? Well, the word homoousios means same being. And the creed includes other phrases and words that are biblical, like light from light and true God from true God. But every time the council fathers proposed a term to include in the creed, the Arians uh, gave an interpretation of that term that was subordinationist. So the Aryans were, were saying, if you say that, then our interpretation is uh, is is okay, according to the creed. The council fathers kept trying to find some way to rule out subordinationism, and they finally decided to use the word homoousios because there was no way that the Aryans could uh, read that in a subordinationist manner. So, were they right or wrong? Um This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is always said to be not found in the Bible. And of course, that's an ambiguous way of putting it, because I believe the doctrine of the Trinity is found in the Bible in the sense that the doctrine of the Trinity is the clear implication of what the Bible says about the relationship of the Father and the Son and also the Holy Spirit. But this word implication is the problem. If it isn't stated directly in the Bible, is it legitimate for it to be considered do- essential doctrine? Well, the Nicene tradition says yes, the Arians said no. And you, and what's interesting is that as you go forward in church history, the heretics are always biblicists, like the Socinians. And and they are and and they, and they and they and they fight the doctrine of the Trinity by calling it unbiblical, which I think is wrong. If we fast forward to the Westminster Confession of Faith in the post-Reformation period, we find that the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, reads this way in uh, Article uh, number one, on on Chapter one, the Holy Scripture, Part six, says uh, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or, okay, this is the important part by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So that statement that what we must believe for salvation and faith and life is either what is expressly stated in Scripture or may be deduced by good and necessary consequence from Scripture allows for the homoousios, that allows for a statement of doctrine that is derived from Scripture by strict deduction, but which is not expressly stated in Scripture. So, Biblicism is is the opposite of what the Westminster Confession is teaching. uh, uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith is teaching that when the Church um, included the Homo Uzias in the Nicene Creed, it was doing doctrine correctly and it was doing the right thing. Biblicism says it was doing the wrong thing. Biblicism, now I, I know that there are people today who advocate Biblicism um, all over the internet, and they claim that, uh, that they believe that the only thing we can require people to believe doctrinally is what is expressly stated in Scripture. But they're inconsistent in, if they believe that the Nicene Creed and the Westminster Confession of Faith are to be, uh, are, are sound doctrinal statements. they So a lot of, so the problem, I think a lot of the confusion comes from inconsistent biblicism. Consistent biblicism leads to Socinianism or Arianism or, or some such thing. It leads to a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but inconsistent biblicism is uh, it needs to be challenged because uh, I think it's a problem that th- that that doesn't come up because people just assume that we all believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and nobody's questioning that, and so we just assume that. Or you see it when they when they try to summarize the doctrine of the Trinity without using the homoousios, and that becomes a problem because there's a there's a reductionistic notion of the doctrine of the Trinity. When you reduce it to simply biblical statements that, that, that make, introduces ambiguity into it, that allows for subordinationist interpretations. And so that's a problem. So, biblicism is something that sounds good and sounds honoring to Scripture, but I don't believe it is. Because the way you honor Scripture is to teach what Scripture says, to teach what it means to teach what the scripture teaches to restate the scripture in such a way as to convey the proper meaning and um that doesn't necessarily get accomplished by sticking legalistically to the words of scripture i mean if we took that to its uh, fullest extent we would say well we'd never we'd never we'd never translate the bible from greek and hebrew we would we would just stick to the greek and hebrew words but we we do translate because we understand that meaning can be conveyed in other words. And um, translation is not infallible. Sometimes there's good translation. Sometimes there's bad translation. Sometimes there is bad theological deductions made from Scripture. In other words, people people, um, develop doctrines which are are not found in Scripture directly, and they're bad doctrines, Uh, and, and they should be rejected. But we don't reject them just because the wording isn't found in Scripture. We reject them because they don't convey the same meaning as what the Scripture teaches. And that's a subtle difference, but a very important one. So um, my concern is that, um, that if we dismiss Thomas and the teaching of the um, doctrine of God in Thomas, um, just because he uses... Uh, terms and ideas from philosophy that do not come directly from the Bible. We are simply engaging in the kind of biblicism which I think impoverishes theology and causes all kinds of other problems.
1: Well, would you like to further elaborate on that now, or would you like to allow Doctor Bolt the opportunity to respond?
2: Well, I, I think I've I've said enough to uh, to get the thing going for now.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. Carter has just stated his concern there at the end of his last answer. So, Dr. Bolt, we turn to you now. How do you respond to Dr. Carter's concern that Van Til's dismissal treatment of Thomas has strengthened biblicism in Reformed theology? Do you agree with his concern? Do you disagree with his concern? Do you have any related concerns? Or do you have anything else to add in light of this question?
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things that may be going on here, both in uh, my maybe apparent disagreements with Dr. Carter um, or the apparent disagreements that are going on, even on the Internet, although I I do um, agree with a lot of what Dr. Carter says there about some of these concerns. But I think that one of the things that may be going on is a difference of perspective based upon whether or not we're looking at this historically, theologically, philosophically, and that sort of thing. Um, since this is a podcast about Cornelius Van Til, of course, I will offer some uh, light defenses of him. Uh, that's not merely because of some sort of celebrity christianity or something to that effect but uh but i I do want to defend his theology and philosophy as it were while also just asking the question of okay but what does this look like uh, finally in terms of the theology and philosophy and apologetics and whatnot that we gain from this discussion so what i mean by that is uh in answer to your question um you know, am am I convinced by this case with Thomas and the apparent uh, misinterpretation or misuse of Thomas by Van Til? That sort of thing. I'd have to see the historical case for it, and I just don't think that the this podcast episode would be a very conducive atmosphere for that. Right? Uh, nor am I equipped to handle that sort of case, uh, so I can probably go ahead and and concede. Something like Fesco's claim, let's say, that Cornelius Van Til appears to be reading Thomas through the lens of those Roman Catholic apologists of his day. Uh, in particular, in a setting where there, there was rationalism, uh, there were serious, uh, problems from modernism, from liberalism, and that sort of thing. And Van Til is constantly pushing back against those, those ideologies. Uh, so I think that that may be the case. Now, again, I, I don't know, historically speaking, uh, or even in terms of Van Til's writings or Thomas's writings right at this moment, whether or not that's the case. But if, if we grant that, I think that we can still come to a large amount of, of agreement here. So the first thing I want to say is uh, there is a distinction between being biblical and being biblicist. And I do believe we want to be biblical. I understand that sometimes people use that phrase biblical as a type of cop out. They don't want to uh, go into and do the intellectual work that it takes to actually show that someone is being biblical. Uh, That would be my only concern there. Uh, Biblicism. uh, Dr. Carter's definition is a good one. Restricting doctrine to what is explicitly said in scripture, I would just say that it's certainly the case of Van Til uh, was not a biblicist in that sense. And so while some of his followers may be, I believe that they actually are leaving his program in doing that. Of course, Van Til affirmed, at least in his confession, he affirmed the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, Good and Necessary Consequence, Uh, all of that. He said something to the effect of, this is a paraphrase, but probably almost a quote that reformed theology, right? Not biblicism or, or these explicit biblical statements and that sort of thing reformed theology is the clearest expression of biblical truth. It's the, it's the clearest expression. He may have said Christian worldview there. I don't want to go down that uh, trail, but uh, something to that effect. So he, in his systematic theology, he describes theology as taking the data of scripture, and then figuring out how it fits together. And whether or not he says this explicitly or not, he means philosophically, theologically. How does the data of scripture fit together in one sort of whole? Um, so, with Thomas, then, uh, should we just outright reject everything that Thomas says because he uses uh, Greek terminology? Uh, And that sort of thing. Well, I don't. I don't believe that Van Til himself rejects things merely in terms of the terminology that's used. I think he's more so concerned about whether or not these ideas, the concepts behind those terms, is scriptural or not. And so I'll 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 stop talking right after I say this. Sometimes I'm concerned. It sounds as though people say we need metaphysics. We need a philosophy even when we come to scripture. Now, I agree with that. My only concern is that it it sometimes sounds as though people are speaking of these metaphysical systems or philosophies as though we can just pick and choose a metaphysic or philosophy that we then take and read scripture through. I think that good and necessary consequence would actually have it That one or another of those metaphysics or one or another of those philosophies is going to be the metaphysic or the philosophy that stems from Scripture. And in that sense, we are being biblical rather than biblicist, the latter of which I would certainly reject and the latter of which I would certainly express some concern about with regard to modern day Vantillians, some of them.
1: Before we move on to our next subject, Doctor Carter, I'll give you a chance to respond if you'd like.
2: Yeah, I'd li- I'd like to respond to two things. Uh, uh, first of all, um, uh, the um, the uh, the question of uh, um, the difference between Van Til and people who use Van Til today. What I see happening in the second, third generation of Vantillians is a um, a sort of a merger of ideas that they promote with uh, American uh, fundamentalist biblicism. So that you see a uh, coming together of, uh, that is people who have a biblicist approach and who do not do much with historical theology and who are not really, um, Working with Protestant confessions, but who tend to be the product of the fundamentalist modernist controversies of the early twentieth century, when they come across Van Til's ideas, they they find them useful in that they they use Van Til to as an excuse why they don't have to read philosophy, because the philosophers are just all wrong anyway, and it's possible to do. Uh, philosophy to do our exegesis without having any philosophical presuppositions, without having any metaphysics to work with at all. And since we don't need metaphysics and the philosophers are all wrong and Van Til reinforces that in our minds, therefore we just ignore all that and go out and try to interpret texts using our common sense. And our common sense tends to be influenced and informed by ideas that are current in the culture. And so we end up using metaphysical ideas that are. Uh, uncritically employed and then some of them are are just flat out wrong some of them come from a, a modern uh philosophical climate that's hostile to christianity and we don't even realize that we're getting our metaphysics from those kinds of bad sources so that's my concern um and and i do th- i fully agree with what you said at the end about the um the need to use uh metaphysics in interpretation and in my book, Contemplating God, what I'm trying to do is to work out a way by which we can purge metaphysics. We, we, we can do exegesis and then we can accumulate doctrines and then think about the metaphysical implications of those doctrines and then use those implications to purge our previously held metaphysical assumptions and question them in the light of scripture, so that we continuously reform those metaphysical ideas to make them more compatible with the overall teaching of scripture. And that through a process of doing this, we can uh, gradually become more and more free of worldly metaphysics and develop a a way of coming to the scripture that's based on the very metaphysical ideas that are the, in in fact, the implications of the doctrines that arise out of exegesis. And that's the goal of theology. That's what theology should be, should be trying to do. Um, so I think we have pretty much agreement on that. Uh, just to go back to Van Til's uh, dismissal of Thomas, um, what I specifically said was um, that Van Til dismisses Thomas as one who simply imposed Aristotle's philosophy on theology. Now, that. That move, that that understanding of of the relationship between Aristotle and Thomas was not unique to Van Til. That was in the air uh, in the nineteenth and early twentieth century. That was commonly held. It's pretty much exactly the same view as Karl Barth held. So if you take Karl Barth, uh, right, you know, in in Basel in the twenties, thirties, forties, and Van Til. Who's dependent on the Dutch uh, philosophers like von and Duyverd uh, around the tw- turn of the twentieth century on the continent? Um, that's they're all they're all looking at this the same way. It's it's not like Van Til is uniquely wrong. Van Til is just in the mainstream of Protestant uh, thinking about Thomas at this time, which was that Thomas simply took Aristotle's metaphysics used it to interpret the doctrine of God and uh, so therefore Thomas teaches the unmoved mover. Uh, well that that's that that is there has been a lot of, there has been a whole movement of Thomistic resourcement uh, coming from the say that the 1920s when Juleson started writing uh, Juleson, Meritan, the French Dominicans um, and, and it's right up to the present there's there's more and more historical scholarship on Thomas, which has completely changed the picture of what Thomas was doing vis-a-vis Aristotle. The, the, now we understand, I think a uh, hundred years later, uh, we understand what Thomas was up to in a far better way. We, we understand that Thomas was essentially an Augustinian. He, was, um, he quotes Augustine more in his Summa Theologicae than uh, Aristotle. Uh, He's basically an Augustinian, and he is um, living at a time when the writings of Aristotle had just been translated and came into Latin, the Latin West, um, and were causing a big kerfuffle because uh, Aristotle seemed to be uh, teaching things that were antithetical to the Augustinianism that dominated uh, medieval Europe at the time and uh, Aristotle was in secularizing influence Aristotle was was seen to be uh, denying the platonic forms have as having a, an extra a reality above this world that forms were just in the in the individual existing thing um, for many reasons Aristotle was seen as a threat to the to the Augustinian synthesis that had uh predominated from Augustine to Anselm to Aquinas. And so Aquinas was critically receiving the writings of Aristotle and taking from them certain ideas that he agreed with and rejecting other ideas, changing other ideas. And the doctrine of God that emerges from Aquinas Owes as much to Augustine as to Aristotle, and it uses Aristotle, yes, but it it critically transforms Aristotle's ideas in the process. So Joson, for example, will argue that that the doctrine of God that um, that Aquinas ends up with is a doctrine of God as pure existence itself. God God is exist His existence is His essence, and this this idea of God as fully actual is the opposite of the the dead immobile the the unmoved mover the the Aristotle's God is the impersonal God who doesn't do anything except sit there and think and the rest of the universe is moved by longing for this 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 God whereas Aquinas' God is a God who is full of 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 actuality that, that allows him to be the creator and allows him to speak and be personal. It's just a completely different concept of God. So to, so to say that Aristotle, that Aquinas used Aristotle in some vague sort of way is true. But to say that Aquinas simply repeated Aristotle or became subservient to Aristotle, took over everything that Aristotle said about metaphysics is wrong. And so the, we know that now. Um, much better than we did hundred years ago, and so it's not just that we're smarter than Van Til and Bart. It's that scholarship has progressed, and we um, we now have a hundred years of careful study of Aristotle in his context, and the literature is vast, and it is of high quality, and it's uh, it really reveals that that Aquinas. the 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 way the way that I think we should look at Aquinas now is to say Aquinas met the challenge of Aristotle by restating the the tradition, the Trinitarian and Christological tradition of Nicaea and Chalcedon as it came into the Latin West through Augustine and 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 dominated the Latin West. He restated that in the 13th century in the light of the challenge from Aristotle, but that in doing so, he gave the Christian doctrine of God a classical expression which now we understand has not really changed from the 13th to the 20th century. the The doctrine of God that we find in Aquinas is the same doctrine of God presupposed by the reformers. It's uh, increasingly, again, scholarship is showing us that that the the Reformation, the post Reformation scholastic Protestant theology, does not materially alter. Uh, the doctrine of God that we find in Aquinas, but that that is in fact embedded and presupposed in the Reformed confessions. And throughout modernity, both Catholic and Protestant doctrines of God have been affected negatively by the enlightenment and rationalism. But essentially the doctrine of God that comes from Aquinas has persisted all through this period, right up to the present. So it's a very different picture of Aquinas that we have today than we had uh, in in 1930.
1: Doctor Bolt, do you want to respond, or do you want to move
0: on to the next subject? I want to do both, but there's so much good right here. I, I think that we can get somewhere. So I, I want to make some distinctions, uh, if we can, and just see what Doctor Carter thinks about these. So I I do agree with the distinction between what he called a fundamentalist approach and a reformed approach to these very topics. Uh, Fundamentalist meaning here something like a, a narrow, more biblicist type approach. I think that there are orthodox and good intuitions behind a project like that, but it's certainly, I believe, a misapplication of a thoroughgoing Vantilianism and the reformed project or reformed apologetic project. Um, I do think, I am a metaphysical realist. Uh, I do see a line, I believe, that runs from, let's say, Augustine to Thomas Aquinas to John Calvin uh, and so on and so forth. I I think I want to turn some of this back on Dr. Carter, although he might agree with this, um, just to say that uh, the, the modernist project wrecked a lot of things, but I think that one of the things it wrecked was the proper reformed use of natural theology. And so it's not that there is a true reformed objection to natural theology, because for one thing, the reformed tradition is not monolithic. But it's also the case that you have uh, pushback against modernist uh, assumptions in the use of natural theology, and so I think perhaps what Van Til is is trying to comment on and push back against uh, is not so much that, and maybe he does say something to this effect, but not so much that uh, Aquinas is taking Aristotle and imposing it on Christian theology as it is that there is Thomas Aquinas the theologian and Thomas Aquinas the philosopher. I think that's how Van Til construes that, and so the difficulty becomes one of. Uh, Thomas saying, in large part, good things theologically, especially with respect to things we agree on, right? Metaphysical realism, uh, the doctrine of God and the Trinity, uh, those sorts of things that he gets right. Uh, so so I, I believe it is the case that Dr. Carter and I both do have real disagreements with Thomas. and And yes, we wouldn't completely say... Uh, go along with Roman Catholicism, which followed from him and that sort of thing. But on the things that Thomas does get right, um, it, it seems to me that Van Til would say yes to those. But then philosophically, what's happening is natural theology is being used uh, by, for example, the, the Remonstrants and the deists and others to try and establish belief in the existence and nature of God, completely apart from any type of revelation from God other than maybe in general revelation. Uh, But, but it it becomes a pre dogmatic foundation for belief in God. So that reason actually precedes our faith in God. Um, I I think that a a lot of this uh, idea that the reform camp is rejecting natural theology in its totality, is a little bit of a, a sloppy uh, a project. That's why you you see guys like Karl Bart getting thrown into the Reformed camp, which I would never put him there. But obviously, he's making these strong claims against natural theology. Um, but anyway, I, I'd, I'd be curious some of the thoughts that Dr. Carter might might have on those in terms of moving this conversation forward in that way.
1: Yeah, Dr. Carter, we could talk about that one of two ways. Our next question was going to be about philosophy and the role of philosophy. Do you want to talk about natural theology by itself, or do you want to talk about philosophy with our next subject, while including natural theology with that?
2: Uh, no, I think we can talk about it all together. It's, it's just devilishly complicated. Um,
1: okay, well, let me just ask this question then at this time, and we will pivot the conversation forward and bring the topics of philosophy and natural theology together. As I ask you, um, this question, uh, as we've already mentioned, Dr. Carter, a concern that you have shared is Van Till's dismissal of Thomas and that it has led to reform theology being dismissive of philosophy. So for this part of the conversation, um, we want to ask you, what is the proper place of philosophy in the life of a Christian? Uh, can you state your concern and then um, take up natural theology in this uh, part of our conversation on philosophy?
2: Okay, well, uh, first of all, the if we want to identify a culprit here, I, I think Bart goes wrong in identifying natural theology as the culprit. And I think that van Til also goes wrong in identifying natural theology as the culprit. Um, the problem here, I think, is that philosophy in the modern period does is different than philosophy in the medieval period, and the difference has to do with the the rise of the modern of modern philosophy from Descartes on in which uh there is an emphasis on human autonomy and the ability of the human mind to to act as the final arbiter of truth. And there's a and and and, and another element in something that's far too complicated to discuss here, but which you know is we we're 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 going to have to make generalizations because because we're dealing with generalizations. You know, it, when Bart says natural theology is all bad, that's a generalization. We're going to have to deal with it at a general level. In, in In modernity, there has been a concerted attack on philosophical realism. And the ironic outcome of the Cartesian attempt to use the human mind as the arbiter of all truth, so something is true, if I can understand it to be based on what I consider to be clear and distinct ideas. There is a refusal in that to acknowledge that revelation has to have a higher authority than reason in our, in our way of thinking. So for a medieval thinker like Thomas, um, revelation, whether it's general or, spe- or special, but both, revelation in both senses has to have a higher authority for us than our own human reason now, in other words something like the cartesian idea of clear and distinct ideas presupposes that the human subject is capable of determining what's clear and distinct and what isn't well that's not the way that that medieval that that Thomas would look at it. So, what I think we need to understand in order to make sense of the of the problem is that there is something. I would agree with 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 Chris that that there is something that both Bart and Van Til are rejecting that is bad. But that something is modern. That something is a rationalism that is uh, rooted in a. In a presupposition of human autonomy, that human beings are the final arbiters of truth. That assumption does not exist in the Middle Ages. Thomas doesn't make it, and therefore the natural theology of Thomas should not be rejected by Van Til and Bart um, as they did. And so, so that the 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 ironic thing is that what begins with. What begins in Descartes with a a kind of rationalism ends up in Kant in a kind of extreme agnosticism, because Kant ends up completely denying philosophical realism. He, he, He ends up saying we can't know the thing in itself. The Thomistic approach is that we can know the natures of things. We we can't necessarily know them exhaustively, but we can know something about the natures of things by observing their actions in the world, their effects, and therefore we can know those natures and we can gain, we can understand something about the universals that in which those natures participate. That kind of metaphysical realism is denied in the modern period, and that when you, when you, and, and so it's almost like, it's almost like an incommensurable conversation. It's almost as if people cannot really meet um, anybody who, and I think that's why Bart was uh, so alienated uh, from his own Reformed tradition from the 17th and 18th century, 16th, 17th century uh, Protestant scholastic theology. He, he, he wasn't really, he, he did not really continue that tradition, he undermined it and attacked it and replaced it with, you know, his doctrine of election, his doctrine of creation. There's so many things that he did that that were not compatible with that tradition. He he really was alienated from that tradition. He was on the other side of Kant. And um and he was not able to really understand and talk the same language. Uh he was barely able to disagree with it, let alone agree with it. And so the so that that I think is the problem is that modernity with the modern project, which I understand to be a project that that replaces God with the human autonomous person at the center of everything um, that replaces revelation with the mind of, of human beings. Well, that that modern project, which is uh, centered around freedom, the freedom and autonomy of the individual human being to to. Uh, to know and to do and to remake the world, to treat the world as raw material and use it in his own freely chosen projects to do whatever he wants with. I mean, that's the modern project. And that is so different from the medieval uh, context of Thomas Aquinas that although we call what Thomas was doing using philosophy in the service of theology, we call it philosophy and we, and we call what Thomas was doing natural theology. To imagine that what he was doing with natural theology and what he understood by philosophy to be the same thing as what Descartes and Kant mean by philosophy and what it would mean in a post-Kantian situation to deny natural theology, we're just talking apples and oranges.
1: Dr. Bolt will give you now the opportunity to respond to Dr. Carter's concern, and if you'd like to, you can also address what you think the proper role of philosophy is in the life of a Christian. Of course, you don't have to, but um, if you want to take up the subject, you can feel free to speak to it and uh, feel free to carry the conversation along in whatever direction you're going to take it.
0: Yes. Uh, okay. So is philosophy different from, let's say, Aristotle to Thomas to Descartes? Absolutely. 100%. I would put it all under the umbrella, broadly speaking, philosophy, but I do understand and take Dr. Carter's point there. Um, I define theology and philosophy, uh, something like this philosophy. We'll start with that one. Um, And I believe Alvin Plantinga says that philosophy is just thinking hard about something. Uh, Whereas I take theology to be thinking hard about something in its relation to God. Uh, And and I know that there's a lot of overlap there. And I know that those are very broad and and potentially even unhelpful definitions. It's just very difficult once we start (laughs) defining these. Uh, But that kind of shows where I am on this, because there certainly are uh reformed or would be reformed theologians and thinkers out there who have such a negative understanding of philosophy that I don't see how, if they're consistent, they could ever do theology. Many of the things that they're doing in putting the data of scripture together, uh, what they call theology, is in fact, philosophical uh, in nature. I think that dr. Carter would even though he might reject my definitions, I think he would agree with something along those lines. Um, so don't, this is this is where I introduce my uh, my little quip about Thomas though it sounds to me that a lot of the folks defending Thomas. Uh, are simply telling me anachronistically that Thomas is a vantillion, and so uh, you know I have a Vantillion card here, uh, and maybe we can give that to Dr. Carter once the episode is over but uh, but i I agree one hundred percent with so much of what he just said there, and that is just what I understand Vantillianism to be in the main. Um, this idea of autonomous human reasoning, I do see much of that. Of course, we've had this would be autonomous reasoning since Genesis 3, right? But we see it come to clearer expression in. Uh, René Descartes and the, the modernist project. He's looking for these, you know, self-evident, these clear and distinct ideas, that sort of thing. What's he doing there? He is starting with the self, which I think that Emmanuel Kant takes advantage of uh, and, and eventually makes the whole program to revolve around the would-be autonomous self. And so I do understand, even historically speaking, what Dr. Carter is speaking of there. Um, Thomas is not starting. Those presuppositions. But I think it's worthwhile to point out that Descartes is certainly trying to follow along in the footsteps of Thomas, at least as he would have seen or understood Thomas there. So we do move from the authority of revelation, uh, a revelationary epistemology in uh, the case of Thomas, to uh, what we might understand as an autonomous. Uh, approach to epistemology in the case of Descartes. And that's the very thing that Van Til sees so clearly expressed in, in Kant and then takes advantage of that. When Van Til talks about his use of Immanuel Kant and, hey, we can do all of these things now because of what he has said, he's not incorporating Kant in some positive way. Uh, If the listeners go back to our previous discussion on this podcast between Dr. Carter and I, uh, we talk about David Hume. Uh, So I very much view Kant the same way as I would view Hume. And I believe that Van Til does as well. We're We're not saying these guys are our friends. We're saying if you start with the self, this is where you wind up. And it is bad. It's so bad that it destroys our ability to know things in principle. Uh, it destroys metaphysics. It destroys a thoroughgoing Christian uh, philosophy. And so, I, I I I would point out one more thing, and that's that Van Til certainly disagrees with Bart uh, on many things. I mean, he writes, you know, Christianity and and Bartianism. He he treats Bart. Uh, at least in principle in terms of a system of thought as representing an unbelieving approach to things. Uh, but I don't think that Van Til, even though his writings do focus a great deal upon what he sees as being bad in the use of natural theology in his day and age. Um, I don't think he completely rejects natural theology. I would say that, and some people would label me an attenuated Van Tilian because of this. I would say that I certainly do not reject natural theology as a whole. Um, I see many different uses for it, even apologetically. Uh, but I kind of think of natural theology and especially natural theological apologetic arguments. Uh, let me give you this illustration. So I grew up in the American public school system, which probably accounts for a lot of mistakes I make in reasoning today. But uh, we used to play this game where we would, in during gym, during uh, physical education, we would have this big parachute And everybody would hold a piece of that parachute. We'd make a circle around it. Apparently this was a common thing in public schools and even today is used in schools and whatnot. But they would, you know, for example, throw these, these balls onto this parachute and then we'd be able to wave the parachute and make the balls fly up in the air and that sort of thing. It was, it was a fun sort of thing to do. I kind of think of Christian theology, um, of, of a world in life view of, Um, The Bible or a Vantillian approach to apologetics, I kind of think of that as the undergirding support for our use of natural theology. So the parachute then would be our revelatory epistemology. And those balls would be, as it were, the natural theological arguments in particular, in our apologetic, and so natural theology and and those specific arguments can be used for part of the persuasive force of the overarching Christian approach to philosophy and and all of these other topics. Um, they can also be used, I think, to throw a wrench into the unbelieving would be autonomous project of of thinking. Um, so. I, I, I I'm I'm ready to call Dr. Carter an an honorable uh uh you know, give him honorable mention for like a what what is it the frame called, a sprawl, a presuppositionalist of the heart or something to that effect. But um but I I hope that we can get somewhere in terms of these things that I've just said, um right there.
1: Um Dr. Carter, uh, you certainly uh would back. like to respond. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I before I before I get enlisted in the Van Til uh, army, I, I got I got I, to I got to rebel here. Um, let me let me just suggest, though, something that um, here's what here's one thing that I find problematic in 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 much discourse today. And I think I don't claim to be any great expert on Van Til, but I think he participates in it as well. It is the tendency to. And we've already discussed this. To call all philosophy as if it's all one thing—that that what what Paul mentions in Colossians 2.8, eight, what Plato and Aristotle do, what uh, the, uh, what uh, Aquinas does, and what Descartes and Kant and Hume do—that's all philosophy. And I think that um, the big divide is between pre-modern and modern philosophy, because pre-modern philosophy is metaphysically realist, so at least the mainstream tradition, uh, what I call the Platonist tradition, including Aristotle <clears throat> coming forward. That is metaphysically real, uh, realist. As metaphysical realism declines in the modern period, and it, it's completely gone in, in human can't, and then after that, it's all just... Uh, It's all just relativism and skepticism. So so when we say philosophy is dangerous, we shouldn't lump in metaphysically realist philosophy of the pre-moderns with uh, anti-realist philosophy of the moderns. They're two different things because there's two possible there's two problems with with uh, philosophy one is the autonomy problem that we talked about before and there we have common ground uh van till you and i are saying the same thing philosophy's bad when it tries to be autonomous when it starts with the human subject and it uh, and it and it makes everything relative to the human mind okay great granted but there's another way that philosophy goes wrong and that in that is it philosophy can Can be subjective in the sense of autonomous, free from God's revelation, but also it can be idealist in the sense that it doesn't really take reality seriously as real. I would suggest to you that Aristotle is better than Descartes because Aristotle may not allow the God of Scripture to determine his thinking, mainly because he doesn't know the God of Scripture but aristotle allows reality to determine his thinking aristotle looks at the world and lets the world affect his 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 philosophy the whole idea of the wise person as far as aristotle would be concerned is the wise man encounters reality and then seeks to live according to it so the nicomachean ethics is a way of adjusting our behavior to the reality of the world around us, so that we live in harmony with the world and not at odds with the world. Well, that's totally different in modern philosophy. In modern anti-realist philosophy, the human mind is not only autonomous with regard to God's revelation, it not only does not allow God's revelation to direct it, it also doesn't allow the world to direct it. It doesn't submit to the world of reality. The the modern anti-realist mind wants to impose the human will on nature. It takes nature as just raw material for the human will to use. So that's where transgenderism comes from. Aristotle couldn't be supportive of transgenderism, according to his metaphysical realist approach to to philosophy, but modern post-Kantians can be uh, supportive of transgenderism because in in their way of thinking, liberation means the human mind not only being free of God's revelation but also being free of the constraints imposed by nature. And so, in that sense, modern philosophy is worse than ancient philosophy. And so, um, when we when we lump in when we say oh, I'm against natural theology, and we don't specify of the modern sort or of the ancient sort, we're confusing the issue because. The ancient, this is what I think Christians like Thomas and, and Augustine saw as useful in Greek philosophy. They saw philosophers attempting to conform their minds to the war, reality of the world around them. And then they just brought in divine revelation, and then they were able to work with that philosophy. But when you look at philosophy today, people saying that the, the purpose of, of philosophy is for the human subject uh, to simply... Uh, you know, be the final point of reference for what is true. So what is true is what I say is true. And uh, God can't change that, and the world can't change that. I'm going to impose my will upon the world itself. Well, I mean, that that's worse. And so it's way more important to reject modern forms of natural theology or modern forms of philosophy than it is to reject ancient for this reason. And so, by failing to make the distinction between realism and non-realism, I think we uh, we, we we tar all philosophy with the same brush. And uh, and I think we increasingly, because we live in this culture where where things are collapsing and falling apart, and there's so much uh, there's so much insanity taking place around us, and people and people are obviously throwing off the shackles of God's law. Yeah. But they're also trying to throw off the shackles of nature itself. Well, that, incline, that leads people, many people, I think, to come to the conclusion, well, human reason is useless, philosophy is useless, natural theology is useless. The only thing we can do is have divine command theory. There's nothing else that, that will save the day. And I think, uh, we're, we're, I think that's a wrong conclusion to come to. I think that, that puts us at odds with great tracts of the Christian tradition.
1: Well, we're coming to the last third of our conversation together today. And in this last third, we want to uh, address some final concerns that both of you have, but we also want to uh, make some concluding observations by way of encouragement, things that you both are encouraged about in the midst of these conversations. So, we would normally... Uh, return back to Dr. Carter at this point, but uh, I think we should pivot and flip to Dr. Bolt. I'll give you an opportunity to raise some final concerns that you have, and this will also give you an opportunity to address uh, what Dr. Carter just finished saying
0: there. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm hesitant to just jump on board with the comment that Aristotle is better than Descartes, I would I would have to ask what we mean by that, although the illustration that Dr. Carter provides is is clearly a good (laughs) illustration of a way that Aristotle is better uh, than what at least than what Descartes would give us consistently applied. Right. Aristotle, in fact, I don't know that many people know this, but Aristotle actually gave us the tools of reasoning to reject the biological theory of evolution, uh, you know, even in his in his time before it ever came around, uh, or at least until, you know, before natural selection, that sort of thing came around in Darwin. Um, So in that sense, yes, I'm hesitant to jump on board with it because I, I do see. Um, A lot of times people will say something to the effect of, "Okay, if we just get back to, let's say, what the early Greeks said, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, um, then we've got this idea of absolute or universal objective truth, that sort of thing uh, versus the postmodernity that we have now and all of that. Now, I am not a postmodernist. I'm not. An idealist, by the way, Vantill wrote his dissertation against idealism. Even though, yes, his language is full of idealist-type terms that he has reloaded. He thinks, anyway, has reloaded uh, with Christian theology. Um, but there, there are two two problems. One is the Greeks still were not Christian. <laughs> the other is that um, we we've moved. I know it's not forward, but we have moved forward historically in terms of the development of philosophical thought to what we have now. And so the question becomes, OK, but what do we have in place back then with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, et cetera, that prevents us from getting to this place. So my answer would be as a Vantillion or an attenuated Vantillion, and I think Dr. Carter might agree with this, my answer would be divine revelation. And if if he's correct about Thomas Aquinas, then that would be Thomas's answer as well. And I don't think I have any uh, objection to that um, in principle. I do think we have a problem when we when we silo Knowledge so the the Nicomachean ethics um, that's not the whole of ethical thought or theory to me, but I think it does play a very strong role. It does get to philosophically speaking some of the things that we as Christian ethicists need to say it 's not the whole story, um, but it is a good development of one aspect of uh, meta ethical theory um, I forget where I was going to to go with all of that but it it has it has thrown me off in the past because I'll encounter Thomas who will try to make it out as though Plato and Aristotle were in this absolute agreement on things and and that just really puzzles me because um, there are strong philosophical disagreements between the two men. Aristotle uh, was one of the first really good examples we have of a student uh, rebelling against his mentor. Uh, Plato saw problems in his program, um, in his two worlds view problems like, for example, the, the third man problem uh, this. Uh, supposed infinite regress that gets introduced into our metaphysics. Um, Plato did see that, but Aristotle jumped all over it, right? And so he he places universals into the particulars in a way, and whereas Plato has things more heavenly, um, I tend to side more so with Plato than Aristotle on that. But I I do that by way of what I see. In scripture and what scripture would entail by good and necessary consequence concerning topics like uh, universals and and our ability uh, to engage in predication uh, and these sorts of things. But I do think and Dr. Carter can can clarify this for me, but I think perhaps what was being said there is not that Plato and Aristotle agree on particulars like that. It's that they were metaphysical realists. Uh, it's that, that they were looking at the world. Uh, they were empirical in a sense in that way. Um, and whereas now modern philosophy ever since Descartes and in there, uh, is not starting their program the same way. I mean, when Aristotle and Plato are looking at in Socrates, when they're looking at the world around them. Uh, they are engaging in a type of God-honoring empiricism that's based on divine revelation in general revelation in nature itself, which is, I mean, it's it's the revelation of God. By the way, Vantillians are not opposed to general revelation. They're not opposed to natural revelation. Vantill actually uh, assigns the same attributes that we would assign to scripture. He assigns those to creation itself. In terms of its sufficiency, in terms of its infallibility, uh, all of all of those same characteristics, uh, the the reason being that he sees it as divine revelation, even though it functions in a different way from Scripture. Um, so uh, I, I went off on that side topic there and was going to bring it back. But I think that's probably a, a good place uh, to stop for now.
2: Could I just respond a little bit there? Uh, I agree with you, Chris. Say uh, we're finding not a lot to disagree about today, um, which I don't know if it makes a successful podcast or not. But but uh, I I think that uh, um, a tradition is defined by Alistair McIntyre in such a way that it's an extended conversation in time. A tradition is essentially an argument. Uh, and and the people in a tradition, as the generations go by, argue with each other. They argue with people in the past, uh, past members of their tradition. What makes a tradition different from just random history is that the people in a tradition have some foundational things they take and they have in common, some beliefs that they 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 have in common that allow them to have interesting disagreements about. Implications of those foundational beliefs. And that's the way I understand philosophy to have worked. So yeah, Plato thought that um, universals were um, in a third realm, that there, there, were, there were existing things called uh, goodness and truth and beauty. And, and that, and Aristotle saw some problems with that. And Aristotle argued that the universals are located in the individually existing things themselves rather than in a third realm. Well, Thomas comes along and he, he, Augustine and Thomas both uh, address this, but by the time of Thomas, we basically have a solution that the, the universals are not just in the individually existing particular things, uh, which, you know, pretty easily can lead into conceptualism and maybe even nominalism, if you're not careful, but they locate the, uh, the, the Augustinian tradition culminating in Thomas locates the universals in ideas in the mind of God. And so the, God creates the world through his logos and, um, God creates things according to a plan in his mind. And, and it's the ideas in his mind that, that are there that actually, um, it, that's what the individual things participate in. So. It's, it's metaphysical realism is a fundamental plank in this tradition. It doesn't mean that they agree on everything, in, especially when it comes time to work out the details. But it, it does mean that they're able to have a meaningful conversation and without having to go back to first principles and start all over every time somebody writes a book. And, um, and so in that sense, I think philosophy, you know, the pre-modern philosophy is useful and has a place. Uh, Not because we just go back to Aristotle and repeat what he said, but because there is a tradition there that allows for progress in intellectual thought. And uh, yeah, I think we we should all agree that non-Christians can discover certain true things about the world. And a non-Christian scientist can discover certain things about the world that are true, that allow us to do experimentally verifiable experiments to find out, to test the the hypothesis, to see that it's right. Okay, that can be done. And I think that that can be done not only in the realm of natural science, but also in philosophy. So you can get get an Aristotle writing uh, an ethics that that says some things that are true about ethics, about virtue and habit. Um, these are consistent with human nature; that that they, they correspond to reality in the world, and to that extent, they they have validity and and they have uh, uh, relevance, and we can use them. Now, does that mean that everything that that Aristotle said is true? Does that mean that Aristotle has some kind of way by which people can be transformed to overcome their sin nature? He does not. And that's uh, that's why Aristotle is not sufficient. We need we need Scripture. So, last thing I would say is um, that um, philosophy and natural theology are not completely useless, but it is really important to situate them in the the historic pre modern tradition uh, rather than looking at them through a, a, a modernistic kind of lens, because if we do that. I think we um, we will either end up affirming them, and in so doing, moving toward liberalism and human autonomy, or we will reject them unnecessarily and end up in fideism. Um, so so the, the critical move, I think, is uh, knowing more about the history of philosophy and theology.
1: Well, I am really encouraged to hear that there are so many areas of overlap in agreement and that you're able to... Uh, talk with each other about these areas of agreement. But of course, there are distinctives and differences amongst these two views, and that's why we've had this friendly discussion today. But I am uh, still very encouraged to see both of you two men speaking uh, to one another in a very godly and Christ-like way as you disagree with your brother in Christ. Um, We do want to leave off this conversation On an encouraging note, so our last question that we'll ask both of you starting with Dr. Carter is, can you give our audience some encouraging observations that you have noticed in the midst of these conversations about um, Aquinas or classical apologetics or Van Til or the doctrine of God? What have you to say?
2: Well, the main thing I'm encouraged about is that um, there does seem to be a a willingness on the part of uh, a growing number of evangelical and confessionally reformed and uh, confessionally confessional Protestant thinkers to um, to take historical theology more seriously, and to uh, to I think that the two areas that I see. Uh, coming, I, I see a growing understanding and appreciation appreciation for the Augustinian Thomist tradition, and I also see uh, a growing appreciation for an understanding of and translation work in the post-Reformation uh, scholastic tradition. So, for example, I would mention the work of David Sissma um, on recovering um, the use of uh, philosophy and Aristotle. Um, in the uh, in the post Reformation scholastic uh, reform scholasticism, uh, Sitzma and company are doing stellar work there, and uh, it's just beginning. I mean, it's building on Richard Muller and David Steimetz and many other good historians. But but the the work that's coming forward there is uh, is going to be very useful. And the um, the work on on uh, Aquinas and Augustine that we we see being done, I think. Uh, I think we, as conservative Christians, um, I think that the, uh, the, um, the, it would be really discouraging if we saw conservative Christianity shrinking down to being held only by the kind of uh, people that we talked about earlier, the very biblicistic and fundamentalists. Strains of of American evangelicalism. If those were the only conservatives left, we would be in real trouble. But we have conservatives who are, I think, taking seriously historical theology. And uh, I think the more work that is done on Aquinas and post Reformation scholasticism, uh, the more we're going to see um, uh, a, a, a the more we're going to appreciate historic orthodoxy and the more we're going to be able to see that it's a real alternative to the um to the kind of postmodern uh thing uh the, the postmodern the degeneracy of postmodern thought that we see all around us I, I i think that 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 is um if i could just give one illustration there, there's a in the early church there, there's some historians of the early church argue that during the second and third century, especially the third century, between 200 and 250, there was a um, around 250, there was about a 50-year period of freedom from persecution. And during that time, Christian church had grown to the point where it was beginning to be signif- uh, numerically significant. And during that 50-year period, the main thing the church did was nothing. The, the main thing the church did was simply have children, retain their children in the faith, uh, and and just just exist and they and they and they did that for a while and they kept getting bigger while the world around them stopped having children and collapsed more and more it was it was almost as if you, if you could just stand still and not decline you gain ground as the culture around you collapses and that I think is what we we need to do today if we can just hold on to our traditions keep doing good scholarship stay in touch with the past um, and just maintain the riches of the Christian tradition, we don't have to invent new things; we just need to stand still, and the culture around us is falling apart at such a rate that 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 our option is going to look better and better the longer we hold out. so it's not as if we have to panic and try to adapt. um I think that uh, the recovery of the past is is critical, and holding on to the past is critical. And at one point in the late 20th century, it almost looked like like evangelical and confessionally Protestant, confessionally conservative Protestants were going to lose all touch with the past. I, I think we've now navigated past that danger. I think we're now beginning to, to come to the point where um, we can see that the we're not going to lose our tradition. So that's very encouraging.
1: Amen. Well, Dr. Bolt, can you also uh, state some encouraging observations that you've seen in light of these current discussions?
0: Yeah, we're certainly in the midst of a retrieval process that's encouraging both theologically and philosophically to sharpen the contours of Reformed theology uh, understood in terms of historical theology. Uh, Also, I think that we're seeing more, you know, uh, to set aside theology and philosophy, uh, you know, I come to much of this discussion through apologetics and through apologetic method and the debates concerning that. I tend to see apologetic methods or schools converging on one another. I'm not sure that many of the distinctions were as sharp as many people make them out to be unless we take them to radical ends that they were never really meant to go to. Anyway, uh, and so to that end, I'm really thankful for people like Dr. Carter and others who are we're seeing the same sorts of problems across the board. And we are speaking into those problems in many of the same ways. So even with Dr. Carter's earlier illustration, you know, saying Aristotle's closer than Descartes, uh, I mean, it really is the case that right now people are rebelling against God by going as hard as they can against creation itself in terms of their identity, uh, so-called, or in terms of the way that God has created them in his image. Um, That is the challenge that we have before us right now, and I would add that it's not Merely a challenge like out there from unbelievers. Polemically speaking, we need to be on guard as the church uh, to make sure that we're not adopting these unbiblical uh presuppositions. I'll go ahead and use that term. Um you, you know, we we saw uh Biological evolution, some of these types of beliefs uh, from the so-called hard sciences that were being accommodated in the church in the 1800s in an attempt to save Christianity on some sort of intellectual level. Well. I firmly believe that we're seeing the same sort of thing happening again, except it's not in terms of the so-called hard sciences. It's in terms of the so-called soft sciences and sociology, all of which follows The very concerns that Dr. Carter has been discussing, even on this podcast episode, Um, the the philosophy of science itself has been given over to uh, sociological concerns and uh, certainly the things that we're talking about in that realm of thought. They've put us in a place where people want to reinterpret and redefine what we're given in Genesis 1 through 11 to match up to modern day ideas that are frankly anti-Christ. And I agree, and I would echo uh, what Dr. Carter said a moment ago, there are going to be a lot of people hurt by this. And the church has an answer. The church is Jesus Christ, uh, his perfect life, his death, his, his resurrection for our sins to grant us a right standing in God's sight through faith in him. I'm going to start preaching here. But everything else that that truth of the gospel entails in terms of a biblical understanding and a thoroughgoing uh, theological and philosophical understanding of the world upon that basis. Uh, that, that is what we need to be emphasizing right now. And uh, uh, I think that people will be attracted to that as time uh, moves on. We're, I think we're going to see that very soon uh, in, in large ways.
2: Yeah, I think there's a good case to be made, actually, for saying that we live in a post-philosophical era. We live in the age of ideology not in the age of philosophy and um so uh, uh you know to to call to call postmodernist uh philosophers is really i think uh, um, a um a mistaken terminology i don't really uh, there you can come up with different neo- neologisms to to describe it but but modern philo- modern so-called philosophy could better be described as idios- idiosophy um than, than, it's about ideas, but it's not really about loving reality. It's about, it's not really about wisdom. It's about will and the will to power. So, yeah, I think, I, I think we're um, we're living in an age uh, that is not only post-Christian but uh, also post-philosophy, and therefore is an age of. Uh, it's an age of Nietzsche. It's, it's you know, we're past human now. We're, we're we're living out Nietzsche's philosophy.
1: Well, we hope this conversation has positively contributed to the current discussions on philosophy, Thomas Aquinas, Cornelius Van Til, apologetic methodologies, biblicism, the doctrine of God, and the various other topics that we have addressed in this episode. We are thankful to Dr. Carter and Dr. Bolt for taking the time to address these subjects. We're thankful for their uh, scholarship in these areas and their irenicism and talking to one another in Christ-like love with their disagreements. And we are also uh, thankful that they've been able to have much agreement with each other in this conversation. Again, we hope this conversation has been helpful to you, to our listeners. We want to wish you grace and peace.